Hey, all right. So I am now on the line with a Mr. Charles Ogar, aka Mr. Neo Kiss. That is correct. Hey, so you are a full time professional international key zoom instructor, Afro Latin dance instructor. You are the CEO of Neo Kizumba. You're an entrepreneur and you're also a podcast host. Is that right? That is correct. And if I'm not mistaken, you were born in Houston, Texas, and currently living in, or born born in Texas, I guess I should say, currently yes. living in Texas. Yes, born in Texas, currently living in Texas. I was born <laughs> in Lubbock, Texas, um, where Texas Tech is, and apparently my dad was not studying. So, sure <laughs> <laughs> enough, I get you. How are you? How you doing today, Mister Ogar? I'm doing all right in yourself. Thank you so okay. much for having me on. It's been oh. a while since I've been interviewed, but it, it's good. Um, I think it's good to be on the other side of yeah. the role, you know, because as you know, I have my own podcast as well. Of course. And we should probably fire? do um, something on this fire. This Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast. Fire. And I'm going to go ahead and put it out here on the line. We should go ahead and do a flip. And I interview you on my podcast, and you get to talk about your story and why you're doing the podcast. But I'm not going to interview you on your own show, hey. but that needs to happen. <laughs> I like it, bro. But you also have another podcast, too, before Dance Your Heart on Fire. You had, um, what, what was it, a salsa one, or what was it? It was a salsa one. So um, before, yes, yeah, so the story behind that is I started a podcast, and it was mostly highlighting salsa dancers because I was into the salsa. Um, and then that was called the I Love Latin Music podcast. Oh, no. And then I found out about Kizomba, and I'm like, man, Kizomba's <laughs> dope, but it's not Latin. So I changed that to like, ooh, I love AfroLatinMusic.com. Oh, no. um, and then Kizomba took over, so then that just gave birth to Neo Kizomba. Um, but I have tried to move like those legacy podcasts over from I Love AfroLatinMusic.com to uh, dance Your Heart on Fire, which is going to be a full scope of partner dance overall and not just Afro-Latin rhythm. So it's going to include Zouk and blues and tango and all that kind of stuff as well, you know? That sounds legit, bro. Mm. I, I'm very, I, I want to start with this though, Charles. Um, you know, I'm very curious to hear about, you know, your childhood, man. And, you know, growing up in Houston, I think you also said you moved to New Jersey, man. Tell me about your childhood, mm. man. So... If we could talk about the geography to start off with, um, I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and then I started school in New Brunswick in New Jersey. And I was there through fourth grade, and I started fourth grade again back in Austin. In Austin, I was in there from fourth grade to eighth grade, and then I started Houston, I started to live in Houston for ninth grade. Okay. And then I was in Houston from my ninth grade year, which I believe was 1998, because I graduated class of 02. And it's crazy. That's about to be 20 years. Yeah, man. Two years. <laughs> so yeah, I was seven years old when you graduated high school, man. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, wow, man. So 2002 is when I graduated high school. And then uh, I moved to Austin in 2015. And I've been here ever since. So yeah, about man. four years now. And, and so I'm curious, you know, um, you know, say you're growing up, you know, moving around a little bit, man. Um, I guess what were what were some of your childhood hobbies as a child, man? It is very interesting to even ask that question. So um, I did I didn't do too much. Um, I wanted to do more extracurricular activities, but there was a barrier. And I will let you know that barrier. 
that barrier was being an on-call babysitter because I was the oldest of eight. Oh, wow. You had a big family, man. So, again, um, I'm not sure what my parents did in their free time, but obviously they actually speak louder than words. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm the oldest of eight. Um, there's me and my big brother at the top, and then all four girls came, and then there's two boys at the end. Um, we're all out of high school now, so the majority of them live in, in Houston, uh, but I'm living in Austin. And so I couldn't do too many extracurricular activities because, you know, with that many kids, extracurricular activities, they cost money when they mm-hmm. start to get to a certain level. So, of course, I had things that were free, like playing basketball or going to the local pool or things like that. Um, there was this one program that I started when I was young, which was my first introduction into dance. It was actually in Austin and it was called Believe in Me. And I don't know it exactly. So this is my adult brain trying to make sense of what happened as when I was a child. I think they had dance interns from a college university come and teach choreography to low income schools. And with that choreography, they made a show out of it. And at the end of the year, they took that show to an event center and put on this weekend event. And the proceeds from that event, I think, got back funneled into the the school district or something along those lines. Again, that's just my dope brain trying to like make sense of what happened. Um, but yeah, that was my first introduction into dance. Um, I actually got selected to be in like a more higher level group of that called the SWAT team. And they were like, <laughs> everybody like looked at the SWAT team because they come in, they have the harder choreos and things like that, you know, but the, the practices for the SWAT team were on, Saturday mornings and my parents couldn't take me to the SWAT team practice. So I never got a chance to indulge in that when I was a child. I'm all, I always wonder what would have happened with my dancing if I had yeah. started that from like a more serious level at a younger age. Yeah. Um, but since I couldn't make the practices for dance, I kind of switched my focus to music. And I started playing the saxophone and the piano and the flute um, throughout uh, the rest of my elementary and middle school years. I also dabbled in a little bit of tennis. Um, And then in high school, I didn't do too much extracurricular activities, um, mostly because at that time we had moved to Houston because my dad started a business. Um, And a lot of my free time after school was going back to the shop to help out my dad. So that didn't really give a lot of time uh, for extracurricular activities. But I I was a part of the speech and debate team for a year. um, And that was pretty cool. And yeah, that's pretty much what I did as a child. Um, I was definitely fascinated by sports and music and and dance. But then, of course, like due to life logistics, you don't have this personal autonomy right. <laughs> as a child. And you have to kind of like do what you're able to do with the cards yeah. that you're dealt, you know? Yeah, man, definitely understand that, man. I'm very curious to hear, man, you know, I guess looking back on your childhood now as an adult, how did you know, growing up with so many siblings. How did that affect you, man? Mm, I had to definitely mature a lot faster. Um, There is a part of me that feels like I didn't really have a childhood because I had to be put into like, hey, you have responsibility now and other people are dependent on you, Um, which is why I don't feel no regrets about traveling and partying and stuff like that with the lifestyle that I have now. I feel like I'm making up for lost time a little bit. (laughs) Um... 
but yeah, it definitely taught me uh, responsibility and discipline and, I mean, bottle feeding, changing diapers, helping out with homework, um, all that kind of stuff. Because obviously, if you have that many kids and both of my parents um, had to hustle, so they both had full-time jobs, uh, working nights, working days and stuff like that. So if one of them weren't home, they depended on me to kind of hold down the household, you know? That's intense, man. That's mm. definitely intense, yeah. I mean, so, I don't regret that, yeah. So I don't, I don't hold any anger at my parents for that. I mean, it is what it is at that particular point. Um, everything happens for a reason, um, but that's definitely what happened. And so that's why I'm kind of really glad and I, glad, and I have a lot of gratitude for my current position of being able to like play and do what I love and also make money for it at the same time. You know, that's awesome, man. That's awesome, yeah. So, so yeah, you know, you're growing up and everything, and I guess I'm curious to know, you know, what happens once you graduate high school? Like, do you go to college or, like, mm-hmm. or... Awesome question. So, in middle school and in high school, since my dad is Nigerian and, like, school is a big thing, a theme for them, education, you have to be smarter than everyone. Um, I definitely was put in the magnet program or the higher level magnet classes and to graduate with extra credits and honors and all that kind of stuff. So uh, a foreign language elective was definitely required for that. So I took Spanish throughout middle school and I took Spanish all four years of high school. And so little known fact, when I started dancing uh, salsa, um, I already had like a base vocabulary from high school and things like that. Um, But I've been fluent in Spanish for the last 10 years. Um, So... I'm actually going to be teaching in Guadalajara at the end of August. I'm really excited for that to go teach hey. Spanish. Um, but uh, I started college and I was at a community college. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. My dad wanted me to be a doctor. Um, I already had kind of a natural knack towards IT things. And kind of like my dad was a, a PC technician. So he was always like having spare computer parts around the house and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of like the household that we grew up in. Very kind of like tech friendly with uh, Windows 95 and Windows 98 and all that kind of stuff that came out when I was younger. Um, and so I start college at the community college and I meet this girl. Her name is Erica and she's from Puerto Rico. And of course, she's in love with salsa and Celia Cruz. And I believe around that time is when Celia Cruz passed away. And so she was kind of like sharing that culture aspect of like being sad because she represented their culture. She was, she was huge, she was, man. She was huge. And so she actually, we got closer through our classes and our studies and she actually burned me a CD uh, of some Celia Cruz and some salsa songs, you know? And obviously she was cute and I wanted to impress her. So uh, <laughs> I started taking the salsa classes at this local club in Houston called Club Tropicana that is still open to this day hey, nice. um, awesome. on the corner of Richmond and Fondren. If you know from Houston, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, out, that's like <laughs> a lot of people came through there with Club Tropicana. This, it's been open for years and years and years and years. But that's where I kind of first started dancing salsa. And with my Spanish skills that I had already, um, getting to know Latin women and Latin music and and just Latin classes. And then I got connected into the dance community and like the congresses and festivals and weekly classes and guest instructors and all that kind of stuff. So 
that was kind of like my first introduction to salsa and but i fell in love with it um because it brought back those memories from when i was younger with dance i was okay. like oh right, i'm an adult right, right. now i have a little bit more personal autonomy now i'm gonna freaking dance hey, and hey. so i started dancing salsa four or five times a week i started traveling to different festivals around texas and things like that and that's how i kind of like re-sparked my love for dance that i had kind of got redirected from when i was younger i guess you man i, I want to i definitely want to get into you know all that man but i gotta mm -hmm. i really want to hear about this man sure tell me what was it like growing up in in a in with you know nigerian parents in, in a nigerian household man what was that like so it was mostly my dad is nigerian my mom is american but my dad ran the household for sure um in the household it was definitely stricter than what I see from like most American families. I'm not sure how many Nigerians are listening or Americans are listening, but like for my Nigerians or African parents are listening, their parents, African parents can be pretty strict. Um, you can't go out and party. Uh, you have to focus on your studies, um, all those kind of things. So, and then also with my dad having a business, I had to work for him as well. And so through all that, I learned the, the value of hard work. So, I mean, you can kind of see my work ethic through my bio, just seeing everything that I'm doing. Right, um, right. And so it wasn't like the kumbaya household, we're gonna hold hands and let everybody do what they wanna do. And that has its own journey or story in it with itself. But uh, definitely if I'm focusing on the positives of my childhood, I would say that I definitely walked away with uh, responsibility, work ethic, and kind of like um, with my dad being a business owner, that's kind of like implanted the possibility from a young age that I don't have to necessarily uh, go to college and get a normal nine to five job and things like that. And that is why I did not finish college. So I don't have a college degree. Okay. Um, uh, I dropped out mostly because of financial reasons. Um, a year and a half in, I just started working and started getting IT certifications. And that was able to get me good enough jobs to kind of like pay the bills and, and get things done. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was kind of like what I believed in back then. And it's crazy because now that trend has just kind of exploded to where lots of millennials and them are looking at college and looking at the debt that you incur. And it's like, man, that is that is something to definitely take your time to consider if that's something you really want to do. And if you're not sure what you want to do yet, then you don't need to pay $20,000 to not know what you need to do. Right, right, right. What you want to do, you know? And so, like, I have some of my friends that are my age now, and they talk about that, that weight of their college student loan debts, you know? And so that's definitely something serious. Um, it's not something that person they believe in. Um, that's a whole nother topic, topic in itself uh, as far as education and entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, like I would say because of my dad, um, I definitely opted and I gave me the confidence to be an entrepreneur, um, more so, um, than I would, if I didn't have for sure. I definitely understand that, man. Take it, come here. Hey, if you can leave a like and subscribe, that'd be amazing for the channel. Let's get back to the show. I definitely understand that, man. I definitely do, bro. I'm, I'm right there with you, man. So I actually, I went to school myself and I graduated, um, mm -hmm. So I, I know that whole thing about student debt. I definitely sure. understand that, man. Yeah, yeah. So um, see, so you say you you meet this uh lovely Puerto Rican 
Yes. And you started taking salsa classes, man. I'm very interested to hear, man. Tell me, tell me about your beginner stage in salsa, man. What was that like? Um, so my beginning stages in salsa, I had a lot of fun. I loved the music, the Spanish culture, meeting uh, Spanish people. They're very warm, very different from your American culture, you know? So they're very warm. They're family oriented. Um, they like to have fun. And it's interesting because you can meet like little kids and like dance cumbia with your aunt or something like that. Um, when you're like looking at the household unit of things. And that's something that I didn't grow up with, you know, and I think that's something that's rare among African-Americans in general, or dare I say Africans, um, that it's like there's not a, a close unit of partner dancing, per se, at large. Is, that, course, is, that, is that Nigeria, maybe? Nigeria, maybe? Or... I will say for the continent of Africa. I'm not thinking, what about what about Angola? Isn't Kizomba very close or what? And that's the only African country. Okay, okay, okay. Well, okay. So, one no. of the very few African countries, and Angola is a polyp country, which means it's a Portuguese-speaking African right, country. Right, right. But it's interesting because all of these partner dances have African roots. But when you take a look at the continent of Africa over at large, like when you go to a Nigerian party, there's no there's no partner dancing. Uh, there's no partner dancing in Ghana or Egypt or Ethiopia. They have hey. their solo dances, you know, right, right, right. Um, but they're not necessarily partner dancing. I can talk on that subject for an hour, literally. So <laughs> you can let you. me know when you want me to stop. Um, but again, pulling it back into my story, um, there's this, there's not a lot of partner dancing that I was exposed to, and I feel like a lot of black people aren't exposed to. However, we have influenced a lot of the current, existing, popular, global partner dances of course, of course. up to date. Whole phenomenon across that, very interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to like do a documentary or something or something like that because I can't cool. let that topic go. Um, but yeah, so my beginning stages of salsa, I was really, really enthusiastic to like keep learning and dance each week and meet different people. Um, I think every beginner goes through delusion of thinking you're better than what you really <laughs> think you are. And you go to a Congress, right? And then you go to a Congress and see this, but even when you go to the Congress, it's like, Oh yeah, I just need to practice for a week and I'll be on that level or something like that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's different now as a professional seeing that like five years is nothing you know, dedicating to your craft. 10 years is kind of like, okay, now you're getting somewhere versus like a one-year dancer, two-year dancer kind of vibe, yeah? So I'll definitely say I went through my um, my phases of delusion, properly so. I think everybody goes through that. And But one thing that I really liked about dancing that I didn't get a lot of, and you mentioned what was it like growing up in a Nigerian household, um, and now, as an adult becoming self-aware, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of the five love languages. I have not. Please tell me. The five love languages is this book by Dr. Gary Chapman, and it basically talks about five ways that one likes to give or receive love. Those five love languages are physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and or gifts. With me, the things that like really mean a lot to me are physical touch and words of affirmation. Um, I realized that in my 30s, though. Mm. And so now I'm looking back at my childhood and I realized that I didn't get a lot of physical touch from my parents and I didn't get a lot of words of affirmation. 
and some of my beginning first romantic relationships were kind of like uh, this desperation of getting those words of affirmation and physical touch because you just need those to feel whole as a human right, being. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, that's a whole nother subject of like therapeutic touch and like platonic touch for males and just between human beings in, in general in society uh, versus having touch have to be immediately sexualized. Um, but yeah, so in salsa, uh, I'm getting more touch. I'm getting more words of affirmation and it's just really, really like I'm falling in love with the dance. But when I take a look back at it, it's like, I'm getting deposits of physical touch and words of affirmation right, right, okay. love things that were kind of like on E. Um, so in this, in this, uh, journey of becoming an adult and becoming more self-aware and kind of like shedding off your childhood and stepping into like who you are as a, as a person and, and as a, as an as adult, um, that was definitely a theme. So that definitely spoke to me. Yeah, is, is that what kind of, is that what kind of made you a stick with salsa then? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Or was dancing, I guess dancing in general, right? Yeah. That was my social circle. Yeah. Um, I would say 95% of my, my relationships, my girlfriends and things like that have come from the dancing. Um, and so it's just like, for me growing up, um, I was a little bit, it's, it's interesting to hear me say this now, but I was a little bit like shy and introverted and socially awkward, just learning dynamics and things like that. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of a, a lifeline for me to kind of like, Hey, I have some friends, we have a common hobby. Uh, I get words of affirmation. I get, I'm getting praised when I do a good job. So that just makes you want to like invest more into the exactly. game. You know? Yeah. yeah. That's, um, sad that I know that only, not, not only helps build up your confidence, man, but it's, you feel like you're good at it. So you want to continue with it. Mm -hmm, for and sure. I, I think that's why, I think that's what drawn me to, you know, dancing as well, man. For sure. And I have to give a shout out to my first salsa instructor. His name is Herman Hernandez. Uh, um, I'm not sure if he's going to hear this podcast or not, but he was definitely my, my salsa dad, and he taught me a lot of moves and things like that um, at Club Tropicana and, and other places. And so uh, he would always be like, you're a good dancer, bro. Keep dancing. Keep doing yeah, your yeah. thing and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I'm thankful for what he taught me and stuff like that you as I started my salsa journey. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, I was speaking to this other lady, man, and another instructor, and she said, you know, at a young age, um, a teacher told her that she should go back to sports, you know, and that kind of deterred her at the time from dancing. And so it's really, it's really amazing to see, you know, how maybe one person or one instance in your life can kind of shape who you are. Cause uh, maybe, maybe if you had not, maybe if you had not received those positive words, you know, you might not even be here where you are today, man. Mm, for sure. Definitely. So yeah, it's, it's very, it's very kind of crazy, you know, how that works, man. Um, I want to ask you this though, man, you know, um, I'm curious to know, how do you think your your years in band class, you know, playing instruments, mm -hmm. how do you think that that has affected your, your dance style or maybe like your dance growth? Me being in band and playing musical instrument has given me a disease. <laughs> and that disease that? is called musicality ADHD. All right, Michelle. <laughs> and... It's one of the things that kind of caught my attention with kids, but um, playing in band and like actually playing the music and 
hearing the rhythms and seeing the way the music is structured and being able to identify different instruments and things like that is really, really, really awesome. Uh, I don't feel like I struggle to hear things at all. Um, And so that definitely, I feel, gave me an advantage uh, in the Latin dance world and also in in Kizomba just to kind of like have that quick musical awareness because when I go out and travel and teach musicality, a lot of people struggle to like encompass everything that's going on in the music and it's something that comes really natural to me. But the reason why it comes natural is because I've spent years uh, around music, if you will. Um, And it's interesting now because now I'm potentially looking at getting back into creating some uh, Kizomba beats and and things like that. And so I want to start getting back into playing music and, and producing some music, you know? There you have, man. Uh, this just came up, man. Um, How important was, I guess, your music in your household? Did your parents play a lot of music, your dad or, your, you know, your mom? That is a wonderful question. Um, music was always there. Um, I think it was just there. It wasn't, like, a main focus, but just through Black culture, yeah? So, okay. Um, my dad, he didn't really listen to a lot of African music. He was listening more to American music. So like Marvin Gaye, uh, Michael Jackson, um, my mom would listen to Anita Baker, Whitney Houston, Tev- do you know, Tevin Campbell. I might be I showing think, my age here, but <laughs> I, 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 I've never heard of Tevin Campbell, honestly. Uh, he is like one of the original, like, like ushers, if you will, uh, okay, in okay. the eighties or something like that. Um, you should listen to a song called, uh, can we talk? Um, okay. or Let's talk to me, something like that. But yeah, Tevin, Tevin Campbell. Um, so my mom would listen to, I remember her going to the store and buying cassette tapes and listen to this. And I remember my dad, he actually had like a, a large record collection with like Earth, Wind and Fire and all of these like uh, black iconic bands uh, growing up. Um, I don't remember him throwing parties or anything like that, but there are nights every now and then where he would play some music and stuff like that. Um, and just keep that rhythm going. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely present in my household for sure. Um, but I think my parents were just kind of like listening to the music for themselves. And that's what we were exposed to. Um, but yeah, like Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Marvin Gaye, um, Anita Baker, Whitney Houston, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, Tevin Campbell, um, Shaka Brown, uh, yeah, naming them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these people were like definitely people that my parents, my parents listened to for sure. Mm, I understand that, man. I feel, I feel like we kind of have a similar background, man. Because um, you know, when I, I played, I did, a, I only did one year band, man. But I've always grew, I've always grown up around music and everything, man. And I don't, I don't like to brag, man. But I feel like, I feel like I'm pretty good at musicality as well, man. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's something that I, I kind of. I hear the music and I'm ready to separate what I'm hearing, man. So I mm. definitely relate to you on that, bro. Catch the pattern of what's coming up, you know? That's what. Like, that's what. That's all it is, though, man. That's all the music is—just is just recognizing the pattern, right? I tried, man. If I, I would, I would put that on a billboard somewhere, like for the musicality, yeah. Because, like, if you hear something, sometimes you hear it every eight count. Sometimes you hear it every sixteen counts. Sometimes you hear it every thirty-two counts. Sometimes there's a special part in the song where it only happens once, right? So it's just kind of like figuring out where you are in the music and being able to zoom out and see the song as a whole. Right. And and still find those little patterns and how they change, you know? Mm. I definitely understand that, man. Um, I I guess we can get to right now since we're talking about it, man. You know, uh, for people who, who 
may actually struggle with musicality, man. You know, is there, how can they improve upon it? Is it, is it just maybe listening to that genre of music, you know, often? Or, you know, what, what is something practical they can do to improve their musicality? So I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I hear the most, which is definitely valid. And then I'm going to give you my recommendation because uh, I definitely have a lot of students that come up to me and ask me for advice in the kids world. Um, but in the kids world, in the salsa world, in bachata world, it's all four by four music. Yeah. And it all follows that pop structure with the intro, the first verse, the chorus, second verse, hook, chorus, and then maybe outro deviations from that for sure but like that's the general consensus uh, of that musical composition so what you hear from a lot of different instructors from a lot of different genres is spend time listening to the music uh, in the background so it's like playing into your ear into your subconscious okay. that is very very so valid. Like the background of your day you mean right I just... for sure yeah okay. um, and that's passive yeah, and it's okay to be passive and listening to the music passively. It's definitely going to help you recognize songs and start to be able to pull your favorites, who are the artists, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, I feel like if you want to be a serious student in regards to improving your musicality, I feel like it, that requires some studying and some mm -hmm. intentional practice, yeah? So practicing with a purpose and... One of those things can be to just take, and they have apps that can do this on your phone now, but take an app that can able to loop music and choose like 16 counts of a song and listen to that 16 counts 30 times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And now you get the chance to just take, instead of trying to take the whole meal of an entire song, right, right, right. now you're taking a spoonful or a slice if it's a, a musical pie. <laughs> <laughs> And now you're able to just focus on that one part of the, exactly. of the music and see the, the similarities behind it, yeah? If you want to take that a step further, again, listening to one part of the music. But then it's like, okay, the goal is for it to go into your ears, processing your brain, and then in your brain be able to move in some way that shows what you're hearing in that music, Yeah. So some people struggle with this from the ear to the brain, to the nervous system, to actually. Right, right, right. Yeah? Exactly. So one way to kind of break that down into little chunks is like, okay, maybe write it down on a sheet of paper. Like, Hey, okay, here's 16 counts. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, eight count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, second, eight count. And like a graph. And then just kind of like, okay, there's this little boop, 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 boop. And you're like drawing like, like a musical sheet, if you will. Mm -hmm. Where you're hearing the things on what count of the music, yeah? Because you have to know where the one is and where the next one is coming, yeah? Um, and then what you're able to hear and visualize and write it down with all the different elements that are going on in the music, a step further would be now, okay, can I maybe have my fingertips and tap the rhythm? Bop, 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 if we're talking about the salsa clave, yeah? Right, right, right. Um, and then... Fingertips, I think we're more easily expressive with our fingertips because we use these more on a daily basis and in more intricate ways than we are our feet. Yeah. Um, sometimes you just need to like break things down. Okay, I'm going to take my fingertips and now I'm going to focus on my shoulders. Now I'm going to focus on my hips. Now I'm going to focus on uh, my footwork to that same sound. Yeah. So you're using different parts of your body to express the same sounds 
in the music. Uh, and then from there, like as your brain capacity expands and what you're able to process, uh, then it can go from 16 counts to 32 counts to 64 counts to like whole songs. And now you're able to like practice a whole song of musicality, but it definitely takes little by little step ways along the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely, I, I understand what you mean by that. And I said, going back to something you said earlier, man, I think it's, I think musicality, is it safe to say it's kind of like a, uh, a two part skill. And what I mean is that it's one part, your dancing ability, and then it's another mm -hmm. part just being able to differentiate everything, right? For sure, yeah. You have yeah. to break that down. Like, okay, I'm struggling with musicality. Well, are you even hearing what's going on in the music? Because if you're not hearing, then it doesn't matter what your body ability is. Right, right, yeah. right. So hearing is one thing, uh, being able to move for one thing. And I would even add a third element into that, brother, and ask, like, how does the music make you feel? Okay. And are you sure able? Enough. And since we're talking about party dancing, are you able to emote that feeling to your partner? Hey, so if this, if this music right. makes you feel happy, are you sharing that happiness? Yeah, because I'm like, oh, this is a happy song, but I could be very technical and be like, okay, counts are on two, three, five, six. So I'm gonna go <laughs> pop, 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 pop. I'm, and I'm musical, but it, it doesn't have any groove or flow, you know? Right, so, right, right, yeah. Uh, as a thinker, as an IT guy, that was definitely where I started off as. And with my dancing and Kizomba especially, it's been helping me more on the feeling side of things as well. And finding that balance between the musical composition and the technical side of things. And then also the feeling side of things, mm -hmm. you know. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, oh, I don't want to get off track, but I feel like the feeling, <laughs> the, the feeling part is that does that come with more experience in dancing? Because I feel like as a when you're new to the dance, you know, mm -hmm. that's that may be when you're more technical and mm -hmm. you're just trying to understand the basics, trying to get everything down. So you're kind of stuck in your head. And once you become more advanced, you know, you kind of get out of your head and you're For able sure. to start recognizing other things. Uh, I feel like it depends on which way that your brain is wired. Yeah? Okay, so no. Uh, have you heard of the Myers-Briggs personality test? I know what it is. I know the different personality types. For sure. So I don't remember all the words, but like for me, yeah, for example, I'm an INTJ. And I want to mm -hmm. highlight the T because that means thinker or okay. thinking. Yeah. And then there's a possibility of it, a person being an INFJ. And F on the other side of the spectrum is a feeler. So in that third letter, we have people who are more inclined to think first and then they have to feel afterwards because that's what's naturally feels natural for their brain process. And there are people who are definitely feelers first. So they feel the music, but then they lack an awareness and they're not sure what they're doing, but they're 100% there in the emotion. And then they have to kind of explore that emotion and that feeling into thinking to like, okay, this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing there. Yeah. So there's like this spectrum of thinking versus feeling. Um, I actually did a podcast on this and it's just realizing where you are and trying to like find the way. So a thinker is like, okay, I'm going to think about it and break it down, but now let me talk about my feelings, hear my feelings. Let me break it down and let me talk about technique or thinking. Yeah. So it depends. Uh, okay. I'm a thinker first for sure. Uh, but I definitely have tons of private students uh, who are mm. feelers first. And so I yeah. have to meet them where they're at. Of course. And of then course. show them and, and bring some awareness that right, and right, I respect. Right. And it's interesting to see that same parallel outside of dance in the Meyer Briggs uh, personality test. 
Mm-hmm. I definitely understand that, bro. I definitely do, man. As everyone knows differently. Um, I, so I want to, I guess, you know, get back to, you know, your story, man. So, yes, sir. say you're, you're doing, you know, sauce and chapter for a while. Um, and, and tell me, you know, I guess, how do you get introduced to Kizumba? How does that come about? So I'll, the first time I saw Kizumba, I was actually turned, I wasn't turned off by it, but it didn't appeal to me. Uh, and in retrospect, knowing what I know now. the first person to say that to me, yeah. Yeah, the first time uh, that I saw it and knowing what I know now, what I saw was bad Tadashinya. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> That's two different things. So okay. it, is, it is two different things, yeah. So I was at the Dallas Book Chocolate Festival one year. Uh, they had some Kizomba instructors from Spain. I'm like, okay, whatever, Kizomba. I'm all about that salsa bachata. And there was like a Kizomba room. And I went downstairs um, at one of the venues uh, that the Dallas Bachata Festival had. And there was just one couple there. And they were all wrapped up into one other arms. And I saw a lot of hip motion. Exactly. And I saw that and I'm like, they're going to have a good night tonight. Uh, and I went back upstairs and I continued dancing salsa and bachata for the rest of the night. Um, that was the first time that I saw it and it didn't appeal to me. And I didn't take any Kizomba classes that year. Well, yeah, um, that wasn't even Kizomba. That was just Tadashinya. That was Tadashinya, which is a branch of Kizomba. Um, okay, but all right. It's, it, it does have its right there. But then, like, if people don't know what they're doing and if the oh, guy's man, trying to get on the girl, the intention of the dance is different, yeah? So. Oh, man, um, the next time that I really saw Kizoma was with my friend. Um, his name is Eric, and I'm not sure if you know who Georgette is. Georgette, Ooh, yeah, I, I know her. Do you know her? Uh, her husband, yes, Troy. Uh-huh. He, he lives in New Orleans. He, I, I know Troy. Okay, nice. So, Georgette and Troy lived in Houston, and there was this one salsa social and Troy was really excited about Kizomba and bring it there. And so he had Eric dance Kizomba with Georgette. And again, Eric did the best that he could, but my salsa brain analyzed their footwork. And I'm like, okay, with salsa, it's like you're stepping on the one. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and a one. And so you're seeing that left foot go forward again on that count. And I couldn't catch his footwork. I mean, if you watch Kizomba, like your foot's work is not predicated on where you are in the count. Exactly. And so that free, threw right? me for a loop. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? What's the basic step? Like, what is he doing? What's he following? And so, and then with Georgette, obviously that looked pretty classy. It was respectful. Um, they were playing around with the music and stuff like that. I'm like, man, I need to learn how to do this. And I also think I liked the song that I heard as well. And that, that's a big part, right? If yeah, you enjoy the music. Sure. So part of it is like even getting exposed to all of the different uh, genres of a particular element. Yeah, because you say salsa, but like there's boogaloo, there's on two, there's Cuban salsa, there's Latin jazz, um, there's bachata, Dominican bachata, Cuban bachata, uh, and then central remixes bachata. So you got to listen to the range of music and see what appeals to you. Yeah. Um, and I feel like some people with Kizomba who judge Kizomba hear one song, but it's like, no, give it a chance and like all right, all right. listen to multiple rhythms, yeah? Um, so I saw Eric dance with Georgette and like, man, that is dope and I need to learn that. And then I think like next week or something like that, Jorge had announced that he's going to have a Bachata Kizoma Festival. Nice. And that was June of 2012 and I bought my pass and that is the event where 
Um, I took my very first Kizoma class. You know who it was with? Um, believe it or not, it was with Afro Latin Connection. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of them yet, but they've been they're the longest lasting Kizoma couple that's still actively teaching that I'm aware of. Um, who, who, who are they? Who uh, are Ricardo and Paula out of uh, Portugal. Um, you can find them on Facebook or I can send you the okay. information, but they've been teaching for it's a long curious. time. That's awesome, uh, man. Isabel and Felicien have also been around I remember for them. a yeah, long yeah. time. Yeah, that definitely and yeah. they weren't there at the festival, but they've been teaching together for a long, long, long time um, and still are actively teaching. So... I'm trying to get them on the show, yeah. Um, the instructors there were Afro-Latin Connection, uh, Pablo Vilches, and another instructor from Spain named Ivan. And they were all three teaching Kizomba workshops throughout the weekend, and so that was my first... Um, that was my first introduction to it, if you will. And that's where I kind of like even fell in love with the dance more so much so that I will flew to Spain. Oh, wow. uh, December, 2012, the same year, the same year to go to a festival, uh, in Madrid. And that was also my birthday month. My birthday is December 11th. And so I spent the whole month in Europe. And that was awesome, really man. that's really nice, cool. That was a really nice uh, time. Uh, I've jumped around Madrid and Slovakia and Austria. Um, but yeah, that that sealed the deal. And I came back. Um, some people started to get it going and things like that. And this one studio approached me uh, and said, "Hey, word on the street is like you're the Kizoma guy." And I'm like, "Okay, how do you feel about coming out to teach?" And I'm like, I don't know how to teach dance. It's like, it's okay. You'll learn along the way. Um, her name was Linda Cook. Um, that was the person that gave me my first teaching job. And because of her, I fell in love with teaching. And yeah, like that was my, I started teaching the dance like six months after I learned it. Oh, wow. And I just kind of like kept learning and teaching, learning and teaching, learning and teaching. And now what? Almost seven years later now. Yeah, I'm I want. Doing... All right, so I got a couple questions for you, man. Um, yeah. All right, let's start with this one, man. Um, I, I feel like some people might be upset mm-hmm. to hear that you were teaching at such an early stage, man. Mm-hmm. Is that what is your looking back on? How do you feel about that? Do you feel like you were ready at that time? Should you have been teaching at that time, or can I can I be frank? Of course, please. I want you to. I will say to those instructors that are shitting on newer instructors to mind their business okay. and focus on their craft. Because if you're coming from a place of scarcity and you think that this person is messing up the dance, then the dance needs to grow. Everybody's okay. going to have their own story. If you are a professional, if you are legit, if you are on your game, then there's no threat because that person isn't going to be on your level in that particular dance. Yeah. Um, everybody has to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. So to those instructors that are like, Ooh, you can't be teaching. What do you do? The culture, you don't know anything, all that kind of stuff. It's like you, there's, there's no Kizoma or dance teacher certification. Right. There's no professional counsel. There's no college degree. Like, there's nothing that you can really get to start teaching dance, yeah? So you just have to kind of, like, start doing it. And if it speaks to you, 
And hey, if you're putting in the extra time to like lesson plan and putting up money to rent studio space and taking the risk financially to like hope you have enough students to come and offset the cost of the studio rental and make a little bit of money because dance teaching is isn't like a lucrative field. Yeah. So like um, then kudos to you. Um, but yeah, I don't feel like the the older instructors should feel threatened or try to push down or knock down the new instructors because they were also started at that place right, at that right. one time. And if you're lucky enough as a new instructor to have an apprentice, that is awesome. Yeah. But I did not have an apprentice. There was nobody else really in the country to mentor me. So I just took it upon myself to like learn the best that I could and start with what I had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my message to the instructors. Get out of a scarcity mindset and think of an abundance mindset. Yeah. Um, the more, so one thing that I think of for sure, is like, if you go to like the huge hubs, like, let's say you go to Spain, for example, Bachata is huge there. Huge. Cause I didn't know that. Okay. How many instructors are there? They probably have damn near a hundred Bachata instructors. Yeah. Same thing with Paris. Paris, Kizomba is one of the global hotspots. How many Kizomba instructors do they have there? Tons, hundreds of Kizomba instructors there, if you will. Yeah. So like. More instructors just gonna help help build the scene and, and increase the pot. Yeah. So for those instructors, I, I just wonder if that feeling or wanting to knock them down is coming from scarcity or an abundance mindset. Or mm. are you feel threatened? Or do you feel like you haven't been as professional and on your game as much as you could have been? And now you're looking at what other people are doing. Okay. Yeah. That's my message there. For the people who have a desire to start teaching and do not have an apprentice. My message to you is to start. Can I? I, I'm, I was almost gonna curse, but you can yes. curse now. I'm straight with you. Uh, <laughs> start I, fucking teaching. Yeah, wait, so um, you say apprentice, you mean a mentor, though, right? You, you yeah, know. like an, a mentor. Yeah, it's like I, in ideal world, you would have an, a mentor. Yeah, right, but like, right. everybody has access to that. Um, now, for my message to the newer instructors who are somebody who's looking to teach, but they're afraid because they don't have experience or clout or or anything like that, I'll just say fucking start. Yeah, um, the students are going to determine who they like and and support exactly. come out who they want. Yeah, so uh, if you starting, yeah, if you start off as an instructor and your classes suck and you don't, none of your students come back the next class next week. That's a sign that you need to improve or do some better marketing or whatever to like get students to continue to stay. Yeah. Um, but people teach for different reasons. Some people are passionate about the dance and really want to see it grow. Um, some people do it because they want some extra income, but again, that's like stepping into like now entrepreneurial territory. Are you able to get enough students to offset studio costs and promote and market and all that kind of stuff? Um, so yes, definitely start, but also realize that for my new instructors, you have to out students, your students. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of the newer instructors that start off and don't take private lessons don't travel to Europe, don't train, don't practice and things like that, but then want the, the, the power or the title of instructor and they're using that as an ego boost. Right, I'm not right, right. either, yeah? So I'm all for teaching, I'm all for doing what you love, I'm all for growing the community, uh, but then if you are asking for monetary value from somebody for, for a, a service, I feel like you should do the best of what you can. Of course. Can. Yeah, yeah. So uh, ask anyone though. Always be a student. That's anyone, sure. right? 
Yeah, yeah. Even myself included at this far, this stage in the game. Yeah. I, still, I, hope, I hope you say that you're going to live it. For sure. Yeah. And <laughs> I've even taken, I take ballet classes or I'll take a Pilates class just to help my own body awareness. Right, right, right. See how I can understand my body better so that way I can communicate that to my students better. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like, and that's one of the reasons I also started my podcast is so I could learn more about the culture and these instructors and things like that and use them kind of like as um, mentors right, directly, right. well, uh, to kind of just make myself more knowledgeable uh, on the dance and everything like that, you know? So I see that part as twofold. Existing instructors, shut up, do your thing. <laughs> Nobody's going to take your students if the students find value in your classes. So enough, yeah. The new instructors, don't be afraid to start. But if you're going to start, really own it and be a student. And um, don't think that just because you say you're an instructor, the students are going to come back to you. You have to earn their trust. You have to earn their value and earn whatever monetary exchange that you're asking. It's a, it's a value exchange, yeah? Yeah, exactly. It's value that they are paying you equal to the value that you're giving them. And you have to continue to grow because you don't want to get to the point to where your students outgrow you, you know? So you have to oh, man. Right, right, right. stay ahead of them, you know? And that should be from your own personal drive, in, in my opinion, you know? So yeah. that's how I do that. I definitely understand that. I appreciate you like going through both spectrums, man, because that could be, that could be, you know, maybe freeing for someone who's hesitant to start teaching, man. They feel like they're not ready yet. So I, I really appreciate that. You're yeah, not going to get better at teaching by not teaching. So, sure enough, sure enough. and there's nobody has a gun to your head that says, if you teach, I'm going to kill you. So <laughs> start and you're not going to get fined. You're not going to be put in jail or anything like that. So, I mean, I get that it, it can be uh, a little bit uh, unsettling because like, Ooh, I'm going to put myself out there. Our students going to show up. But typically if somebody wanting to teach, maybe somebody in the community is already asking them to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh, it's like, right, right. and put them in, those people tend to kind of rise to that position naturally anyway, I feel. So yeah, own that. And there's nothing wrong with trying something and say that didn't work out and trying something different or moving on to something else. You know, like people are afraid of failure, but failure is how you check yourself to see like what you're good at, what you're not good at, what speaks to you, what this doesn't speak to you. Yeah. You have to taste it. If you don't taste anything, then you don't. How do you know if you're gonna like it? You know. Mm-hmm. Show it up, man. That's so true, bro. I wanna, um, you know, I wanna kind of go back in time, man. I want you to, I want, I want to hear about your beginner stage in Kizumba, man. Tell me what, what was that like, man? So, that was really cool. I, I said at that festival, June 2012, with my first Kizumba class. Um, it was really awesome to see the demos and. Since I already had that musicality aspect of it and I already had previous dance experience, again, like I'm careful. Like I do realize there was definitely some delusion the first two years <laughs> that I went through. Um, but I do feel like I was able to grasp, get a hold of the dance a little bit uh, faster than some of the other people. Um, and then I started teaching it so early as well. So that kind of helped build the self awareness of what was going on as well. So. Um, it was really fun at that festival. I was really inspired. I was introducing, I like the culture, um, with my dad being Nigerian and hearing that it had African roots. It was cool to kind of like potentially have a link to, right, right, right. uh, Africa in some regard, even if it wasn't specifically Nigerian culture, but it was African culture. Uh, that was something to new to me as well. And I feel like that's something that is shared with a lot of African-Americans 
uh, nowadays that link to Africa. We all know slavery existed, um, but then a lot of us don't know what African country we come from, you know? That's a big and thing, part man. Of that is, it's hard because you don't know. Like, if you all, all, all the slaves are just thrown on a ship and then they didn't forget about their identity and their culture and their language and all that kind of things, it makes it hard, you know? So it's nice. I feel like that was, that was the theme as well. Uh, and then the musicality, the potential of the musicality to not follow the eight count and to really express the music in different ways that you felt necessary. So that was also really, really nice. Um, and the music definitely spoke to me more than salsa because Kizomba music connected to top 40 music. Okay. So I heard remixes of Beyonce and Usher and things like that, you know, like how many Usher salsa songs do you know? Or Beyonce salsa right, songs. Right, 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 yeah. Um, and so it was closer to hip-hop and R&B, which is what I grew up with. And so that definitely spoke to me more. And then on another level, since I am a physical touch person, Kizomba is a closer dance. So I got more touch out of that dance than I did out of salsa and bachata. So that also offered a therapeutic element into it as well. I definitely understand that, bro. I definitely do. And I think that's, I agree with you, Gaum. I think that's why I resonate more towards Kizumba as well, man, is that I love, you know, I'll be honest, man. I don't really, in my free time, I don't think I've ever truly played salsa music, man. Like, once I'm outside <laughs> class, man. But I, I definitely, I, I'll definitely bump like some Kizuma music or just yeah. simple music. I really love simple music. Simple mm -hmm. is amazing. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I, I think that's a big part, just connecting with the music so much. Definitely. And if that speaks to you, then it's just going to make it that much easier to dance and invest and go out to a social and things like that as well, you know? Exactly, man. Exactly, man. I, I'm, I'm very curious, man. I'm, I want to hear about, you know, I guess your beginner stage in teaching, man. What was it like learning to teach and, and how did that help you become a better dancer? Um, I feel like if you take a look at the best dancers in the world, they teach to I some degree. Because in teaching, it also teaches you, right? Yeah, so... Learn from it. If I, should, if I could have a hashtag to encompass my Kizoma journey from then till now, it will be hashtag when one teaches to learn. Hey, so no, there it is. Period. For I never heard that, but it's true. Yeah. So it's a quote. I made it a hashtag because it's 2019. Hey. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was definitely my whole jam. Like teaching just makes you like you have to set the example. So, hey, move your left foot. And then you move your right. Oh, shit. That's not my left. That is my right, you know? And the students was like, um, are you moving your left foot or your right foot? And, like, people's brains work in different ways. So, like, yeah, you gotta when, when that. somebody asks a question, they're from their perspective. So now you have to receive that question, process it in your brain and your body, and see the question behind the question, right. and then answer that question in a way that makes sense to you but then also makes sense to them, yeah? Right, right, right. Um, so people learn in all kinds of different ways, and I feel like a really awesome instructor will be able to adapt to different learning styles. Uh, obviously, you have a stronger learning style that resonates with you personally, but if you're, again, the value that you bring to a number of students, I feel like it's being able to cater to multiple learning styles. Some people need to count. Some people need to hear the music. Some people need direction. Some people need sounds like, okay, boom, da-da-ba, boom, 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 or one two, three, and four. That, that, those words will speak differently to different people, yeah? 
Or if you're talking too much and they say, hey, I just need to try it with the music, then they, they, they have that freedom and they, they, they get that light bulb moment as well. Yeah. So it's like almost like a, like a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Like what combination of exercises and words and drills and demonstrations can I do to get that light bulb moment to, to come off? Yeah. So I fucking get off on like creating as many light bulb moments as I can yeah, in my yeah, classes. Yeah. Trying to light light it up. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's definitely uh, how I started off with teaching. Um, I, like I said, I didn't have a, a mentor, so to speak, but I did try to travel to Europe once a year nice. to go train and take private lessons and things like that and then come back and share what I learned. And I've been doing that over and over again. Uh, and so that's where I've got most of my training done. Uh, and then I also put on my festivals. So obviously coming and bringing instructors, I'm also observing the way that they teach, what they're teaching and things like that. So, yeah, I really, really love teaching. Like I would say that's my strongest uh, ability in the dance. If we're taking a look at like social dancing, performing, teaching, um, in that regard, I would definitely say teaching is the thing that kind of like gets me, uh, gets me off. Um, as sure as as far as happiness and sharing that knowledge, and that's why I, so I'm still doing it. Like in my yeah. private lessons, like when I see an instructor, I see a student like finally get a move, it gives me goosebumps still. Yeah, you know, okay. so I use that as kind of a gauge of like, hey, this is still something that I'm passionate about and something that I enjoy doing. Um, but yeah, like teaching is really where it's at. And then teaching is where you make your money in the Kizoma world. Yeah. Because in the Latin world, you can pay money for a show, uh, because that's more of a performance driven dance scene. Uh, but in Kizoma, that's not the case. So if you are a Kizoma instructor or artist and you want to make money, you have to do that through, through teaching. Sure enough. Yeah, yeah man. Speaking on, um, Speaking on your festival, Neo Kids, man, mm -hmm. t tell me how did that how did that come about? And 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 I guess and what year did you start that? Uh, we just had our fifth year, so that was 2019. Then? So it should have started 2014. Okay, so two years after you had started, then right? Yeah, so kind of out the gate. Um, so I mentioned my dad was an entrepreneur and having a business and all that kind of stuff. So, um. Between me dropping out of college and me doing salsa dancing and things like that was about five years. Uh -huh. And during those five years,